instructions. So I just to give you a very brief background, um, I taught high school for five years and have been at Kelvin College for the past, I believe, 22 years. I coach uh, softball and volleyball at the high school level as well as now I'm the, I, I coach uh, softball a few years back and now I'm just the volleyball coach at Kelvin. So just to introduce, have an introduction for this talk, I just want to make a couple of comments. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Uh, first of all, this, what goes on in the mind has become very intriguing to me as a volleyball coach over the past several years, starting from even when I played. And what I noticed was the thought processes as you're competing or as you're performing, whether that be in the classroom or at your job or in competition, um, can really make a big difference. And so that is what kind of drove me into my degree. I have a PhD in sports psychology, but a lot of the things I'm going to talk to you about today really you won't find in books because there are things that I have found that have not worked and things that I have found that have worked. Um, from painful losses to really great wins um, and just on a day-to-day -day basis how to think about as you're performing skills, right, whatever skill that is, how people can be affected by what's going on in the mind. And with saying that, a lot of people think, why would I need a sports psychologist or why would I be thinking about things like this? Because it seems sort of like a, it's considered a soft science. Um, maybe it's really in people's heads and it really doesn't make a difference. And um, I find that very ironic because you look at any of the elite performers, elite business people, um, and they will hire personal psychologists to work them through and teach them skills on how they can be better at what they're doing. And so we see that at the elite level, but what I see at our level, we're Division three level. Uh, we play volleyball at a small Division one uh, caliber, but what I see, it makes all the difference. And for me, if I can have a team that's talented enough to be in the top 10 in the nation, I have a pretty good sense that I'm going to out-coach the other nine coaches when it comes to what's going on in the mind. That doesn't mean we always win, but I think we give our team an advantage because they have skills that equip them to know how to handle situations when they fail and when they face pressure. So if you are in here this morning and you're not a coach, I would love for you to, set, to apply this to your classroom, to the kids you work with. If you're an administrator, you can apply this to how when you're dealing one-on-one -on -one with kids. And I think whether it's anxiety before a test, to getting kids to really believe in what they can achieve and, and have them hit their capacity. Um, if we don't address what's going in the mind, going on in the mind, then I think we are really having our children fall short of what they can achieve. So that's sort of the introduction. I, I've spoken, I think, four years in a row. I have really put a lot of faith-based material in my talks. This is going to have less of that. Um, but I also think as a Christian coach, we're called, or, or educator, we are called to uh, try to maximize our students' capabilities. And to me, that's honoring God and what we do. And so that is the faith piece that I, I want to say goes hand in hand with this uh, presentation.
And I would love to make it a little bit more informal. So if you have questions as I'm going, please just raise your hand. I'd love to have a little more of a discussion, if that helps. And I also try to leave question, uh, room for questions at the end. Okay, um, what percentage of performance is mental? I was really fortunate enough to work with the Olympic volleyball team a few years ago, and I asked them this question. What percentage of your game is mental? And the lowest percentage that was said was 85%. I just worked with a high school varsity tennis boys team this fall, and I asked them the same question. And their answers, the lowest answer was 75%. And I would guess if we talk about middle school athletics or middle school performances, maybe it'd be a little bit lower because skills matter, but as you, as you perform and as you get better at your skills, then more different things come into play that make a difference. But either way, um, I'm astounded how coaches and teachers aren't addressing what's going on in kids' minds. And I hope you can walk away today and have some strategies in which you, really, you can really help your kids. Okay, be a 10. I just wanted to tell you a story about this. Um, if I were to ask you right now to perform, think about a skill, doesn't have to be athletic, think about a skill that you are fairly decent at, that you've had some practice at lately, and if I put some pressure on you to perform that skill, and I asked you, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being 100% confident, how confident would you be, what number would you give me, that you were confident that you would be able to perform that skill under pressure? Okay, I don't need answers. But last year, we had a group of five seniors. Um, we had a lineup where it was pretty upperclassmen driven, and we have been working on uh, some of this mentality training, particularly in our serving. We want to, and I'll go into that in a little detail, but anyway, we have them go through a series of six steps before they serve the ball. And I was noticing near the end of the season that we were not doing the things that we were training them to do. And so I just kind of on a limit practice, I hauled them all in the middle. And I just said, okay, I want you to go serve one ball, and I want it, you need to put it in. Okay. So they went and did that. Not all of them went in. I brought them back in the middle, and I said, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being your 100% confidence going in, you're going to serve one more serve, and I want to know what your number is. I went around the room, around the circle, and I asked them, and the highest was an 8, and the lowest was a 4. And this is right before going into the regional tournament. And my setter, Jenna, gave a set of five. And I said to the group, okay, can you tell me why? We have, we have put you in a position where you can succeed in serving. We have worked on every type of serving under pressure, aggressive serving, putting it in the right zone, and we have prepared you. Why is it, why are these numbers so low? And Jenna raised her hand, and she was very vulnerable, and she said, Coach, I'm going to be honest, sometimes the crowd's chants get in my head. And sometimes I just don't feel like I can do it. And so we worked all week. Between every single drill we did, we did a serving drill where we said, be a 10. It doesn't mean your serve's going to always go in, but you have permission to allow yourself, you've been trained enough to say, I am choosing to be a 10 because I know I can get it in. It doesn't mean you're going to serve at 100%. It 
right? So we find ourselves in the first match, we got a terrible draw. We played the national runner-up the year before. We happened to be the national champion that year. So it was a rematch um, in the first round of tournaments. And we found ourselves down 10 to 14 in the fifth set. And if you don't know volleyball, you have to get to 15. So the other team had, they had basically four chances to shut us down in one point. And when you do rally score, that's really difficult deficit to come back from. And guess who was serving? Jenna, right? She was a five. So I looked at my assistant coach and I'm like, this is gonna be really interesting. So she is serving for the end of her career. She's a senior and she served the first one and was interesting, she served six serves in a row. Okay, we ended up winning 16-14. Now, I realized that we could have had a miss hit. I realized the other team could have slammed it in our face. But what was interesting about those six serves, two of them were aces, so they were, they were touched only once or not touched at all. So not only was she serving at a high percentage, 100%, she was serving really tough, okay, which is what we have trained them to do. And at the end of that, that night we were in our hotel room and she said, Coach, I have three things to tell you. First, um, I didn't feel like I was a 10. I honestly felt like I was a 20. She said, two, uh, you told us that at some point our backs are going to be against the wall and we're going to have a choice to make. And whether that's in life or in the volleyball court, and you were exactly right. And I just said, I'm not going to let, I am going to do everything in my power um, and I'm just going to take one serve at a time and I'm, I believe in myself. Um, and she said, three, if we would have not done the things that we would have worked on this week, I can promise you I never would have been able to serve those six serves over. Okay. So that story, right, it was a great ending for us, that match. Um, it might not have been, but either way, to be able to have her be put in a situation like that was a huge difference maker. And so the things I'm going to be sharing with you today are going to be uh, some things that we talk about all the time in practice, uh, and I think you'll be able to apply them. Uh, by the way, this was, this was her picture right after we won. And if you know Jenna, she is very reserved. She's very quiet. She's the one on the court that always tries to calm people down. And uh, she's, she's becoming more adventurous, but to see this picture is one of the best pictures that in my whole coaching career, because to see the pure joy and the just letting it out, um, if you know her, that's not easy for her to do. So, all right, mentality training 101. What are some basic things that we have to know in order to uh, move forward on the stuff? First of all, you can only have one thought or emotion at a time. That is really important to understand. So if I'm thinking about how I'm not good enough, or I'm thinking about how I might miss my serve, or maybe I don't feel worthy, okay, um, or maybe I'm never going to be able to finish this test in time, um, those are things that are not allowing a person to be positive. And so it's impossible to think about two things at once. All right, another thing. There are negative thoughts. We have negative thoughts. We have positive thoughts. And then we have this thing called in the zone. Okay, for those of you that are unfamiliar with uh, sports, 
and, and I, we could apply it to academic in the zone. When you're in the zone and you're performing, you don't feel anything at all. It, everything becomes really easy, and you're not trying to think through things, you're just being, and you're doing it really well. So you're performing at a high level, and it's an awesome feeling. It's kind of a high, a rush, and it's when teams or people do this in performance, um, they, form at the, they perform at the top of their ability, typically. Okay, well, from the research, we know that the only way you can get in the zone, which we all want our kids to do, is to think positively. You can never jump from being negative to going into the zone. And when I think, when I say that in the zone, elite athletes, as much as they train, as much as they prepare, they can only play or perform in the zone about 20 to 25% of their performances. So our kids, it's going to be less than that. Okay. Um, but to understand that if we can get kids to think positively or instructionally, instructionally would be considered positive. Then we know we are allowing them to jump into performance at a much higher rate and giving them a chance to do that than if we were uh, if they were in their negative thought process. Any questions about that? Yes. Give me some of the success words that you teach your kids, teach your players to say to themselves. It's different for everybody, um, and I'm going to give you some practical things in just a minute about what we say. But one idea would be to have when you, we always have our servers, one of their six steps is to say a phrase right before they serve. That phrase can be, uh, nobody's going to touch this, or um, I'm going to keep my elbow up, whatever individual for them. I don't really care what it is as long as it's positive or instructional. And I'll give you some more examples. Any other questions? Okay, the first three to five seconds after somebody makes a mistake is the most critical time to recover. And not a lot of people know that. Okay, so practicing how somebody reacts to a mistake or failure is really, really critical. And I'm going to ask you this question. When you are, the kids you're working with, when they make a mistake, whether it's in performance or in your classroom or in your office, what is your reaction? Because I'll tell you, my players, they are watching me, and maybe it's women in particular, they are watching my reaction, my mood swings. When we have a big match, I walk into the gym and they will be, there's some of them that are going to be watching if they're seeing, sensing anything different. Am I worried? Am I angry? Am I crabby? Am I happy? Okay, and so people will accuse me, accuse me, I think it's a, 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 a strength. People will say to me, you're just so calm sitting on the bench, right? You show no emotion. Well, my players would tell you I do show a lot of emotion, but to me it's in the right time. And I am a little bit, I like to look relaxed. Some of it is acting, I'll tell you that. Um, but it does not help them when they hit a ball in the net and they glance over at me to see me have my head down or me roll my eyes because I am sending them a really powerful message for the next time they get the ball. So three to five seconds. The other thing I'm going to say is what are the rest of the kids doing? So whether it's in the classroom again okay, or on the field and the court, 
how are their teammates reacting to those mistakes? Because they're noticing that too. And then with the performer, how is their reaction to their mistake affecting everybody else, including themselves? So whether that's body language, putting your head down, whether it is saying I suck, right, or um, whatever it is, resetting, pressing the reset button, that's another strategy. I'm resetting this right now. Finding a focal point, right? For a lot of our players, it's the top of the antenna. They see that antenna, they're refocusing, and they do it within five seconds after they make a mistake because they're practicing that in practice. We make them do that. Okay, so that would be another idea. But how you train your kids after a mistake, if none of you are doing it, or if, if, you're, if some of you are not doing it, then this is one thing you can do to make a huge difference. And I think this starts in lower levels. This could start in elementary school, right? Getting them to respond. Okay, how do you teach kids to become mentally strong? Okay. Uh, the first thing is having them be aware of what they're thinking and what they're saying. When I ask this question to kids at our summer camp, they, some of them will say, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay. So one of the exercises you can do is have them say, they, we make our players, the freshmen coming in, and our veterans are a little bit more prone to this, but we will say to them, after you make a mistake, you need to say out loud, where a coach can hear you, exactly what you're thinking. Another strategy would have a little notebook on the sideline or in the classroom that whenever they make a mistake, they have to quickly jot down what went through their mind. Okay? And for some people that are a little bit nervous about um, saying things out loud, other peer pressure about what people are going to think, a notebook would be a great idea. But to make them aware of what's actually going on in their mind. All right, this is one, I love quotes. Okay? Be careful how you're talking to yourself because you're really listening. You're listening. The more negativity or positivity that you can get kids to do in their mind and out loud and positive body language, um, the more they're going to be aware and the more they're going to be able to control it. Another one, don't let negative and toxic people rent space in your head. Raise the rent and kick them out. And that could be themselves, right? That could be, I'm going to not let myself do that. Okay. Managing the strong and weak voice. I have a little video clip. This video is from a former UCLA softball coach. Some of you might have seen this clip. It's just about a four-minute clip. And she has won 11 national championships. Um, and she goes around the, the country speaking. If you ever, her name is Sue Inquist. Uh, but this, she talks about strong and weak voice. And hopefully my speaker is still attached. Have a strong and a weak voice. And I just have to ask you, would you? Self, that coached the person 
that allowed me to be in a position to affect others. But it wasn't until the end that I realized we all have a strong and weak voice in there. All of us do. And the trick to getting to the top and staying on the top is to be able to manage that voice. Would you recruit them? Because they look like losers to me. But what I found in retirement, I wanted to go across all gender, go across all sports, and I wanted to find out everybody's dark side. And I asked them to write on your card all your weak voices. And there they are. But what I want the world to know, because many of you will not be, no offense, a 22-time national champion, an 11-time national champion. I want to give you things right now that you can walk out this door and know to be able to say, that voice that you see up on the screen right now, that language that you see on the screen right now, that's a champion's language. Okay, I want to pause there. Do you notice what's going on here? She went across gender, male and female, to some of the top athletes in the country. She asked them to write down their weak voices. These comments are from a 2008 Olympic gold medalist. Okay? So we all, the point is, is that it doesn't matter how good you are at something, all of us can have those weak voices. And I think that's really important to know. You're not, you don't have to be a weak person, or sometimes you think elite athletes, they never have that go on in their head. It's just not true. That's the trick. The trick is, we understand, we're, we're, we're evaluating that conversation all the time. That conversation that's going on in your head, you every single day from this day forward is to release your student athletes, release them to be able to go, yeah, there are times I am scrambled eggs in my head. Create the environment where they feel safe to be able to go, whoa, it is messy up there. Help me. Because if you can show that champions have that weak voice, why do they become the champion and remain a champion? What did UCLA do that got him to the top? But more importantly, I'm more fascinated what keeps you on top. And the trick is you manage that strong and weak voice in your head. And you make a commitment to yourself from this day forward. I can't change the weak voice, but I can ask you to always let the strong voice get the last word. Doubt is a part of what fuels us. That's human nature to have doubt. Let's stop being the coaches that say, you need to go out there, oh, UCLA. They're just so fearless. No, everyone, no, I gotta pull back the curtain. No, there's a lot of fear. You're UCLA, you've been to the World Series every single year, every single kid has a championship ring in the legacy of this program. No pressure. <laughs> the only thing we have to be great on is I told my student athletes every day, we must let the strong voice get the last word. And you do that drip, 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 Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday, it becomes natural. You see, culture, mindset, illiteracy doesn't happen at an event. We are not gonna change your life, you are gonna change the lives of others by drip, drip, drip. Be simple, be clear, be consistent in the message. And part of it is to be authentic. We have good days, bad days, strong and weak voices.
Let's manage that. And if we do that, you're going to stay in your brain. And I love the Sharpie because I always, we always think of the Sharpie. If you're in sports, we sign the balls, we sign the t-shirts, we sign the paper, but it's indelible. Every single day from this day, I hope I affect you anytime you see a Sharpie. I want to ask you. Okay, love this. Drip, 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 Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday, right? We have control over what is going on inside our kids' heads and to equip them to have them listen to that stronger voice, to have that voice win out. And that, to me, is something that is in our control as educators, right? It is they are going to take on what the leader is doing and saying. Okay. Another idea, train the mind just like you train their bodies, right? We spend all of this time on skills, right? Whether it's academic skills or athletic skills, and we don't take the time to train this, and we really should because it can be a difference maker. Uh, one of the things I do, I ask, I'll ask a player, so what were you thinking that, on that, that skill or that play? Hey, what's going on in your mind? If you have a good relationship with them, they'll be honest with you, right? And if you, keep, if you have that a part of your routine in practices on a day-to-day -day basis, they will uh, start to become more in tune and open up and tell you. Okay, routines. This is a big one. This is very practical. I'll give you some examples. Okay, I told you about our survey, okay? Um, a routine is designed, it's pre-planned, used to help you focus and prepare, and they're based on science, not luck. This is not, uh, a routine is not a ritual, right? It's not uh, something that you do because you're worried that if you don't do it, you're not going to perform well. This is actually something that it's all pre-planned and practiced. So I'll give you an example. The best free throw shooter in the world, okay? She's actually a female NBA, uh, WNBA player. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Elena Del Don, Donny. Um, this is her pre-free throw routine. Right there. She does all of those things. This is very similar to our serving routine. And this might go, wow, that's going to take a long time. Well, when you practice this over and over and it becomes secondary, they're still doing it in the mind and they are filling their thoughts with something positive and instructional, which is filling their thoughts with not the pressure. Right? So uh, we I've had something really funny happen this year for the first time. We do this, one of our serving routines is to take a deep breath. When you take a deep breath, physiologically you are relaxing your muscles. We will not serve well if we're tight and tense. Okay, I think same thing for uh, a lot of close skills where they're, where they're uh, you have control with the ball. And we had a crowd, uh, an away crowd, kids, the student section, pick up on this breath. So every time our women would breathe, they would yell, breathe. Okay? But the interesting thing was, I almost felt like it helped our women because they were, they were aiding in our women doing what they needed to do. Okay? Um, and so, and I asked our players, did you notice that? And a couple of them did, most of them didn't because they were just doing their thing. And the other thing I find is kids are wanting this stuff. They will grab onto anything you 
can give them to strategize, to handle when the focus is on them and they have to perform. Okay. And so uh, here's another one. Uh, this was the, sorry, the basketball one. This is the basketball one. This is a tennis one, okay? Just in this ex example. All right, I want to show you, this is a really cool E60. Uh, this is about a baseball player, and I'm only going to show the first few minutes, but it's going to give you an idea. This is a professional player of how his mentality training made a difference in uh, his performance. All right, everyone, let's get it going. Jeremy, what do you got? A guy who 16 months ago had never played in the major leagues, but now he's been elected to two all-star teams, won the Rookie of the Year award in the American League unanimously, and many people in baseball are saying that he has the potential to be the best ever at his position. Where was he a year and a half ago? That's the thing that makes Evan Longoria in a lot of ways so special. I mean, he really did come out of nowhere in a sense. Not only was he not drafted out of high school, not only was he not recruited by a single Division I baseball program, he was barely recruited by Division Three, which doesn't award scholarships. What changed for him? Well, he'll tell you the most important thing that changed for him was his mental maturation. Um, 
It's about having them not think too far ahead. Wow, we're up, we're up by this many, we're gonna easily win. In pressure situations, no lead is too safe. Okay, now maybe some of you that manage a clock, it might be a little bit different, uh, but those of us that don't, uh, it, 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 it doesn't matter. Any team can come back and any team can uh, lose a big lead. So we never settle. We always think about giving the effort for that point or for that segment of time and concentrate just on that. Put them in situations where they can practice these techniques and thought processes. Right, so in practice, um, sometimes we'll do a serving drill where I am standing next to the server. Um, we have a couple coaches standing next to a server, I'm standing next to three or four, and I make them verbalize those six steps. They might think it's corny, but it forces them. And I had a, a player um, where we didn't do this, I, we talked about the routine, we said this, we practiced it all the time, I didn't make them say it out loud. We were at a summer camp and they said, Kristen, can you share with the girls what your serving routine is? And she looked at me and she goes, well, Coach, I really don't have one. I'm like, what? We have worked on this for two years. She goes, I know, I just don't know if it works for me. And I'm like, Kristen, for the next four weeks, in spring practice, the next, for the next four weeks, I'm going to ask you and force you to do it. At the end of the four weeks, you can come to me and tell me you don't like it, and then we'll discuss it. But for now, I want you to do it. She's one of our best servers. It took her one week to say, this is awesome, right? But it was forcing them. I actually have a machine we've built that records their voices. They wear a little uh, microphone, and it records their voices into the computer, syncs to their, uh, the, the, their play, and they can listen to themselves while they are uh, playing. It's it, only in practice. But it is an accountability measure that I don't know is anything else out there, because they know they're being recorded, they know they're held, being held accountable, and they can't just say, okay, I'm doing it. Um, but if you're there to listen to them, they have to do it. <coughs> pressure situations, right? Put them into pressure situations as much as you can. Um, practice. Solid mechanics, game-like situations. I'll give you some examples on this one. Our, our first four minutes of our of our beginning of our practice. This is one example of what we do. We put four minutes on the clock. We only have a two hour practice, two, two and a half hour practice. And so time is of the essence. I put four minutes on the clock. We call it 10, 15, 20. They have to do a series of skills, two on two, cooperative, where they have to put the ball over 10 times in a row, 15 times in a row, 20 times in a row. And they have to do that in four minutes. If they don't, they're going to get, we have a punishment wheel that they spin and then they have to do the punishment. But what it does is it instantly, well, they get tons of skill work. They get their bodies warm, which we have to have them do instead of having them run laps. They have to communicate with one another. So it gets them immediately into practice mode and it's putting pressure on them to deal with that. Okay, and sometimes, every once in a while, I'll make it so hard that I know they're not going to win it. Because I want them to fail in order for them to work on some of this negativity. Alright, risk and, uh, 
actually, I'm going to move on to that. We don't have time for that. Risk and no fear of failure. Okay, I had somebody in the gym. One of our players wrote me this little note. Okay, I love how safe I feel in the gym because I know it's okay to make mistakes. We encourage our kids to make mistakes. We do not react to mistakes in practice, nor try and manage We might address them. We might instruct them how to do it differently, put themselves in a different position, do a technique different, um, talk to them what's going on inside their head. But we make it where they feel, you can do that. You're halfway home in a competition, I think. Okay, so you let them know that it's okay to make mistakes and they feel like that. If you let your fear of failure keep you from taking risks, you will fail to become great. No one achieves greatness by playing it safe. This is a huge one, at least to me, for women nowadays. Okay? To let themselves go and risk without fear of failure, there's, uh, I feel like it's more, a bigger and bigger trend. We throw anxiety in there, which is happening more and more, uh, which is part of the problem because they're afraid of failure. Okay, another one. You have a choice to make. I think I gave that to you before. You have a choice to make. At some point, we all have a choice to make in the situation we're in. How are we going to handle it, right? Okay, dealing with failure and pain. I, I want to I show you a video clip. Um, excuse the, the swearing, the one swear word. I'm not sure I call it a swear word. Maybe it should be. Um, at the beginning of this, but I think it's just a two or three minute clip that I think uh, I want to dive into a little bit more. In modern times is what other people think. So our job is to love others and not give a shit what they think of us. Because we only get one emotion at a time. That's how our brain works. One emotion. So our job is to really find the right state that we want to be in, the right emotional place. And use that rather than let the brain win. And if that is untrained and unconditioned, it will win. show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams. All right, today's guest is a high-performance psychologist who has worked with some of the world's most accomplished athletes and performers. He's helped level up everyone from Olympic gold medalists and MVPs in every major sport to elite UFC fighters, Red Bull extreme athletes, the U.S. military, and the Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks. He's the guy you call in when you absolutely positively must set the skydiving world record by jumping out of a helium balloon at the edge of space and falling back to Earth at faster than the speed of sound. Or you decide you want to become the first person to survive jumping out of an airplane at 25,000 feet without a parachute. No matter what your discipline, if you play in rugged, hostile, and elite spaces, he's the man you bring in to help you build a mindset for unparalleled achievement. A peer-reviewed published author with some of the most usable insights into the mind there is. He's been featured by virtually every high-profile news outlet around, including NBC, ESPN, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. His principles and teachings are so sought after that he and legendary NFL coach Pete Carroll co-founded the Corporate Training Institute, Compete to Create, to help some of the world's largest and most prestigious companies create winning cultures that foster greatness and fulfillment. Their client roster is the who's who of the Fortune 500 and includes Microsoft, Zynga, and Boeing. So please, help me in welcoming the host of Finding Mastery, one of the most recognizable minds in the field of optimal human performance, 
Dr. Michael Gervais. Good. Thank you, man. Yeah, that was fun. Dude, your story is crazy. Like, what you help people do is really, really extraordinary. And that's where I want to start. Like, what it takes to play at that elite level, especially around the framing of, you said that every great change starts with pain. And I found that really intriguing. It feels dark. It feels heavy when you say that. But it's, I, that's been my experience, that it's accurate, is that the reason people change is because of pain. The reason we grow is because we get uncomfortable and we embrace being uncomfortable. But being honest with the pain that we feel is usually the prime mover for people to do the work that is necessary to push to the edge. And in the space of world leading athletics and arts and business, everybody works hard. Right? And some people work smarter, but everybody works hard. So there's a balance in modern time right now about running to the edge and then properly recovering. So why would somebody run to the edge? And run to the edge of their ability? To, their, to the capacity that they have within themselves. So yes, but when we talk about capacity, we're talking about emotional capacity, mental capacity. Long gone are the days where it's just physical capacity. Like you can get your heart rate up relatively easily and, and that is the old way, it's still relevant, but that is an old way to think about capacity building. That's not the case anymore. And what we do is we spend time working to understand the strengths of people. We wanna understand where they wanna go and how they wanna be on that going in their life. So that's like setting a vision I want to go back to pain for a second. I have a quote uh, which I thought was really extraordinary. This is from you. The worst thing we can do for our loved ones is to try to reduce their pain. Yeah. Okay. As a mom, right, I don't like to see my boys hurting. As parents, we don't like to see our kids hurt, right? This is part of the issue that we have as coaches dealing with these crazy parents, right? So um, after listening to this, it has made me rethink to say, you know what, Situ situations that our kids are put in, we need to put them in these minor painful situations because when real life hits and they have to deal with something incredibly painful, if we're not equipping them to know how to do that, they're gonna be in trouble. And we're not doing that with kids enough today. Okay, so I'll give you a, a real example of what we do. We have a summer workout program. There's nine challenges. Some of them are of physical, some of them are not. One of them we call the track. Every, every challenge is named after a league opponent. So when they're training for these challenges, I want them to think about what it's going to take to beat them. Right? And so we can say, if we win those challenges at the beginning of the year, we won the league before we started. Okay, one of those is called the Trine Bridge Run. Okay, and if the bridge across Calvin, across the belt line, they have to go up, across, down, back up, across, down, that's one. They do that eight times, and they have to do that in about 16 and a half minutes. Okay, they work all summer to do it. To be able to see, when he said the key is to get people to run to the edge, right, and all different parts of their, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, if we can, if we can train our kids to run to the edge, right? We're forcing them to go to the edge. I'm forcing our players to go to the edge in those areas. Then when they're 
like that in matches, they are going to feel they're prepared. And even more so, when they're in that 10 years later in life, they're going to feel prepared. I have that all the time. My players will come back to me and say, playing on the volleyball team at Calvin was the single most important experience that I have that equipped me to be a mom and how tough it is. Okay? But that summer challenge, okay, there's nine of those, like I said. To see a freshman come in and to gut it out and to fail, right? Maybe they don't win that ridge run the first time, even though they think they've trained hard enough for it. And then they've got to do it again, okay? To see them sometimes win it a second time or a third, the third time, there is nothing more powerful. I wish I can't even write it on in paper how powerful it is to see their grit develop and to see their teammates, what they do to help encourage them is so important. It's not even, the, the physical part is important for us, but not even close to training about pushing somebody to the edge, right? So we have to do that in careful ways. But if we can do that emotionally and mentally, you are going to find a different person in your classroom or on the field or on the court. Okay? And in those pressure situations, we feel pressure every day. We're typically ranked number one. How do you get your kids to, how do I get my kids to handle that? Right? We stay in the present moment. We prepare them in everything that they do. We keep things light and loose, and we still have fun. Um, and so those are things. Think about what area you're in. How can you push your kids, not just in their skills, but in other areas? Okay. Um, these are some examples of pain that's not very, you know, some are devastating to kids. Oops. Back to this. Okay. After you've lost a few games in a row, maybe after you've lost every game, okay, and you're, you're, you're playing for, for the last map, game, after a person suffers an injury, after a coach tells you that they're replacing you in the lineup, here's what I get all the time. Getting on a college team and being average when they're used to being the stud in high school, that is difficult for an adjustment. Okay? And some people can't handle it, so what do they do? They don't grit through it and get better. They transfer. Okay? They just go, I'm going to leave the situation and I'm going to go somewhere else where I think I can succeed better. Which, if that's how you define success, okay. But not that I agree with that. Being a senior and having some stud freshman come and take some of the, get the big stats, that's difficult to deal with. Okay? Not very positive. But all those things are ways in which we address and talk about. All right, some miscellaneous things, and then I'm going to open up for questions. Opponents, these are miscellaneous sports psychology mentality training things that you can that we talk about all the time. Opponents, we never put anybody on a pedestal. And we never disrespect somebody that they're they're bad enough that they can't beat us on any given day. So we are always talking about how we are playing on our side and we are playing the game, you're not playing the situation or the opponent. Okay? But we respect everybody, but we never put somebody on such a pedestal that they're, we've lost before we started. Okay? End of the season runs. I've always had it where the producers are the ones that feel the most stress. And they will have a choice to make at the end of the season, when your season is on the line, that if things aren't going well, they are going to either create more distress and anxiety for their teammates, or they're going to band together with their teammates. And when they cause more distress and they chirp out and they get angry, typically a team is done. 
Okay, when they, in a, when they come together, I had, I think I've told this story before, but in 2010, we were down two games to zero, 21 to 16. The other team needed four points, and our back row was playing terrible. And our best player who took over a match, could, could, could take over a match, went to them in a timeout and said, I'm going to block better for you. It's not your fault. I'm going to block better for you so you can pass better. And it's like this weight was lifted off their shoulders, and we came back and ended up thankfully winning. Okay? But I know that if she wouldn't have said that, there's no way we would have been able to do it. Being nervous is good. It's okay to show nerves. If you get so nervous that you're throwing up, then you're probably thinking about the outcome too much. And as your nerves kick in, that's where you should be thinking about things that are in your control. How hard you can play, what a good teammate you can be, um, all those types of things. Playing the game, not the opponent. Okay, If it's your, whoever it is, you just play the game. Embracing the cliff walk, right? Your season is on the end, end on the line, you lose, you're done. You gotta, you can't shy away from that feeling and you gotta go, we love this. We love being uncomfortable, okay? Because that's what gives us the rush. Um, and giving the outcome to God, okay? For us, that is one of the most uh, in, encouraging, relieving things that we do, okay? Because in the end, it's really not that important even though it seems very, very important to us at the time. Okay, and then just in conclusion, I'd love to open up for questions. Here's if you take one thing away from this talk, it's this. If you stay, if you can get your kids to stay in the present moment, whether they're taking a test or they're dealing with, with uh, failure or a lot of pressure, if you can get them to stay in the present moment, they will not feel pressure at all. Okay, and think about that. Because you feel pressure from the past, what happened, or what the future could hold. But in the present moment, you, they will not feel pressure at all. All right, I'd love to open it up for some questions. Yeah. So, what do you do, like, lately there's been some kids that they, their mindset is challenged because they're so worried about what everybody else is going to think about them if they screw up or if, when... When I have these conversations, it's not like everybody's not going to be thinking about every little thing that you do, but they're so engulfed in what everybody else is going to think or say or react that they kind of freeze up and then they their mental mindset never gets right. Sure. Well, the first thing we do at the beginning of the season is we will ask people, we'll have everybody go around the circle and apologize. Right? And apologize for every future mistake they're ever going to make. And it's done. So there's no apologizing on our team after that. And then the other thing is we talk all the time about teammates on how you are going to react to other people's mistakes. And if you can get the teammates to uh, not react in a negative way, but in a positive way, and for women, that we, we talk about that. So I know that Anna Camp does not appreciate somebody going up to her and saying, get it, you can get it next time, right? Whereas somebody else on my team really loves that. So uh, part of that is knowing your personnel, but having them, if you notice somebody's reaction to a teammate, when, I, when that happens, sometimes they do without knowing, that would be the first thing I address to them. I say, that's not going to help us. So I, I am in tune to always watching those things and addressing it. And then the fear of getting rid of the fear of failure in practices, um, that's something that it's, if you stress it and you talk about it and you 
don't react, but it's more instructional. Uh, I think that those things dissipate and they go away. Anybody else? Part of that I want to say is somebody who's really insecure with themselves, right? That's addressed to that person. And I, I've done that a lot, actually. Right? What is stopping you yourself from really believing that you are one worthy, that you are capable, and why not you? Right? I mean, what is it? And for women, I tell you, that's a magic potion for me, coaching women. I don't know if it's... Uh, we just did this thing where we sent letters to every alum that played volleyball at Kelvin. In fact, the first one was in the 1950s. She's still alive. We asked them to tell us what volleyball was like at Kelvin when they played. We asked them to tell us, give us some advice. Um, and the first letter we received back had the same exact stuff about being a Christian woman and having it be okay to play sports. Okay, so this is embedded in generations to me. But how can we get our, our girls to go, I can play and be fierce and love myself and be confident. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult. So those are things I would address on an individual basis. Maybe one more question. I'm a teacher, so I can handle silence. Nobody? Anybody? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, I feel really honored.